Um, I have another installment in our teaching on the blood covenant, message preaching. Um, it's, this is, uh, I think, number 13. One word, zeal. Everyone say zeal. Oh, and even said it with a little bit of zeal. That's great. <laughs> Let's do that one more time. Zeal. zeal. All right. Excellent. Well, zeal is a product. The zeal of God is a product of the blood covenant. Now, there's been a lot of foundational teaching, and all these messages are free, available online. You can dig into them and get them. So I'm not going to re-preach all that stuff, but uh, just call to mind over the past several months what um, we have been looking at in the blood covenant. Hallelujah. How God takes the two parties and out of them combined into one brings forth a new creation. Praise the Lord. And that new creation is Jesus Christ. And as we are adopted in him, we receive the benefits and are considered also a new creation. So in Isaiah 9, 6 through 7 is a very familiar passage of scripture. And it is about the fulfillment of the blood covenant. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from the latter time forth even forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. I want some of that because it's going to bring the government of God and it's going to bring everlasting righteousness. It's going to bring peace. Hallelujah. That, that all that is prophesied about Jesus being given to us as a son is brought forth through this thing that Isaiah called zeal. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. So let's go back in time to Abraham and Abraham's uh, obedience to go up on Mount Moriah and offer up the son of God's promise to him, Isaac, as a sacrifice. And he's about to drop that knife and offer his son to God. He knows it's inhumane. He knows it's, it's wrong. But he, why would he do it? Why? And I've thought about this for years. What would cause him? The only thing that would cause Abraham to be willing to offer his son Isaac was that he knew he was in blood covenant with God. Because of it, his covenant partner, God, could demand of him whatever he wanted, and, I, and, and Abraham was obligated to give it. But because not only was Abraham obligated to God, but he knew that God was obligated to him. And so he knew that if I offer up Isaac, God's going to give him back. One way or the other, God's going to raise him from the dead. And so we know the story how that the angel of the Lord stops him and says, Now I know that you fear God. He said, The Lord has provided himself an offering. So Abraham's willingness in obedience to the blood covenant to offer Isaac in sacrifice to God, that's what opened the door for the Father to give us this son, Jesus. 
To you is born a son. To you a son is given as a substitute for Isaac. Why did God have to substitute Isaac? Because Isaac was insufficient. Isaac would have never been able to fulfill the requirement of the blood covenant. You see, the blood covenant that God made with Abraham had a very short phrase in it that really detailed the obligation that Abraham, and by extension, we have before God. And that is, God said when he made the covenant with Abraham, walk before me and be perfect. Walk before me. I think I can do that. I can walk before me. Be perfect. I don't know. We are a broken race. We're flawed. We are, we are born in our sins. I don't know how to undo that. But Abraham is following God's lead, and God is, God is drawing him into this blood covenant act to offer his son because it's going to obligate God to turn around as his blood covenant partner and do the exact same. And I've got a son for you. Don't worry about it. Take the boy back down the hill. So he goes up the hill with Isaac, comes down with Jesus, essentially. Praise the Lord. And so Isaac was not sufficient because of the requirements. Isaac could never, and there's no human that could be offered to God that would ever fulfill the requirement of the blood covenant on our part, which is walk before me and be perfect. You see, God wasn't looking just for an offering that would take away sin and make people perfect. He also had said, walk before me. That's the part I want to bring your attention to. We always focus on the part where God says, be perfect. I need to cleanse you of your sins. We want to straighten you out. We want to put order back into your disordered life. Your life is off balance. It's out of order. There's sin, and, and God wants to bring order. But he also said, besides be perfect, he said, I want you to walk before me, which was a way of saying, I want you in communion with me. The Almighty God says, I want you to walk before me, and I want you to be perfect. And so that offering of the blood covenant was not just an offering to take away sin, but probably, more importantly, God was looking for an, uh, an offering, not that would make people perfect, but that would make people alive. People who were incapable of walking before God because they were dead and God doesn't walk with the dead. We were dead and God needed us to be alive. We were depressed and God needed us to be alive with zeal. Can you say amen? amen. So the ultimate purpose of the blood covenant wasn't about judging sin but about bringing life. And Isaac could not bring life. He couldn't even clear up sin. But God says, I have a son, I'm going to give him to you. He's going to, be, he's going to be yours. You will be able to lay hold of him. He'll be flesh and blood like you. He will be completely given to you, yet he's not going to be like any son you've ever produced. I will produce him. I will give him to you. He'll represent you and me. He will be the new creation of that blood covenant. And he will be able not only to judge sin, but he will be the life bringer. Hallelujah. Jesus did not enter your life to make you correct, but to make you alive and zealous with the Father's love. The more you focus your walk in the Lord on being correct, the farther away from zeal and love you're going to get. 
But the more you focus on being zealous in the love of God, the more you'll want to obey Him. The more the grace of God and the zeal of God will work in your life and sins hold over our life and the flaws will loose and loosen their grip as we walk in victory. God is not correct. God is not perfect. And that's why He loves. God is love and that's why He's perfect. It's his love that makes him perfect, not his perfection that makes him love. Can you say praise the Lord? So when God gave you his son, he gave you himself. In the New Testament, it says, God sent forth the spirit of his son into your heart. Who can finish the verse for me? Crying, Daddy, Abba, Father. So the, the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit that's been sent into our heart, what does He say? What is, what, is his, what is His voice within us? It's Abba, Father. Abba, Father. Dad, Daddy. Do you hear the zeal of the Lord, the zeal of God's love in that cry? Hallelujah. God sent the Spirit of His Son into your heart to install in you the zeal of of his love. That really was the objective of the blood covenant. Was not to bring correctness to a fallen world, but to bring life to a dead world. To bring the object of God's love back into communion and love with him, and the correctiveness will take care of itself. Wow, you just missed a great chance to say amen. I thought I'd punch. I don't like to always coach the congregation, but sometimes a little coaching is necessary. Um, listen, in Jesus, in the Gospels, we don't see a God obsessed with order, do we? But we see a Heavenly Father possessed with love. Think about all of the scenes that you love to read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Think of Jesus in Galilee. Think of Him moving through the temple. Think of Him out in the countrysides with the people. We're not seeing an obsession with order. He's able to move among the imperfect. He's able to love the unloving. He's not offended, put off. He's not hindered by the imperfections or the lives that are out of order. God is confident that he can bring order to a disordered world. But what we see is not a God obsessed with order. We see a God possessed with love. It's his love that is constantly being expressed through his actions, through his words, through the tender way in which he deals with the most fragile and broken of people. And somehow today in the church, and I don't think it's just today, I think it's been throughout the ages, we, we, we shift back and forth between God's love and his order as though it's a choice. But it isn't a left hand and right hand thing. It's a stackable priority. One supersedes the other. One's the foundation of the other. It is the love of God that brings order, not order that brings the love of God. Can you say praise the Lord? And so the only way God could do that was to give us His Son. I will come and I will give myself to you. Praise the Lord. When you're zealous with the Father's love, it brings Jesus out of you. It does, doesn't it? It makes you act like Jesus. That's really what brings Christ's likeness out of our lives. It's not the strenuousness of trying to hammer ourselves into church conformity. 
but it is the brokenness and the pouring out of our souls unto the Lord and thanking Him for His love and being saturated with His love because with it comes the conviction eventually of the things that hinder and defile that love. The more we are zealous, now I emphasize the word zeal, a lot of people are thirsty for God's love, but zealousness, you've taken another step. You're not just thirsty, you're drinking, you're eating, you're obeying, you're pursuing, you're following, you're in discipleship mode. And so when you are zealous for the Father's love, it brings Jesus out of you. And so when it brings Jesus out of you, what does Jesus look like in you? I, I picked a couple of verses that, that I think show you how Jesus worships, how Jesus praises, how Jesus responds to things. Zephaniah 3.17. We've been quoting this verse a few times in the past few months. I've heard a couple of you mention it. The Lord your God in your midst, a warrior who saves, he will exalt over you with joy. He will renew you in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. Now, I dare say that we tend to have a picture of us worshiping the Lord, maybe in our private devotional or collectively when we're singing or worshiping or praying, and we see somehow almost like the statue of Abraham Lincoln at the Lincoln Memorial. God's paralyzed in some great throne, sitting there sifting the content of what our worship and our praise is, just checking it out, interested really primarily in one thing above everything else, are we right, are we in order? And you know that breeds a nervousness and a discomfort within us, doesn't it? It really, but um, uh, let, let, me, um, let me ask you, and Antonio and Kaylee, I would imagine your children don't come groping in fear and terror, mommy, can I have a snack, or daddy, can we play a game? I've been around your kids, they jump in my lap. So I imagine they're coming up to you and just like puppies, just jumping on you and uh, saying, come on, and pulling on your clothes. And uh, Am I right? Yes. Yeah, why do they do that? Because they know your love. They know your love. Hallelujah. And so look at what it says about Jesus. It says, the Lord your God is in your midst as a warrior who saves we think of warriors, some of us have been warriors, and uh, we think of warriors as uh, staunch and uh, maybe a little sterile. We hold things in. <laughs> There's no warrior like Jesus, glory to God. Hallelujah. He is the warrior who saves. But the Bible says he exalts over you with joy. He's shouting. He's shouting you down. He's out praising you. He's out dancing you. You say, oh, I don't know if Jesus is dancing. I think he's sitting down. Um, but that's not what it says here. It says, he will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. God's excited. Hallelujah. Is it all right to tell you that this morning? I, I, you know, I know I'm behind the sacred desk this morning, but, and I'm obligated to tell the truth, but I truly believe God's excited. Amen. How could we be excited and God not be excited? God's turned on. God's excited. He is exalting over us with joy, and he's beckoning us to join him. And I think if you were to pray, probably put a video on Jesus 
and a video on us simultaneously at the same time in the spirit realm and in the natural, you'd see Jesus rejoicing over us and us kind of, you know, contemplating. All right, let me get to the next verse. Here's another one that kind of shows Jesus um, and, and how, what he's like. And it's when he had sent the 70 disciples out and he gave them authority over devils to heal the sick and cast out devils. And they came back after a while and they said, wow, Jesus, even the demons were subject to us. They said, well, don't rejoice that the devil is subject to you, but that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Um, he wasn't saying don't be happy or don't praise God that you have authority over the devil. He was saying don't make that the thing you gloat in. If you're going to gloat, if you're going to brag, brag in the fact that you're my people, hallelujah. So then the Bible says, at that very same time, well, I'll just read it to you. On that same occasion, Jesus rejoiced, and the word rejoice means he leapt for joy. Leap for joy. Leapt for, he actually left his feet up in the air, leaped for joy. The master, the Messiah. Jesus, Lamb of God, Lion of Judah, danced around rejoicing, the Bible says, in the Holy Spirit. So it wasn't bad enough that he's dancing around saying, oh, Father, thank you for revealing your authority and your power to your children. I thank you, Lord, that the, the wise haven't figured this out, but I was able to give this to them, and they went out, and you have moved through them. And he's so excited. He's dancing around praising God. Hallelujah. Over you. What's he praising God about? He's praising God about what you are doing. So this is my Jesus. This is my Jesus. This is how... How he is. Almost makes you want to grab his hands and jump around with him. Praise the Lord, doesn't it? But see, that's how Jesus praises the Father. Rejoicing over you. I, I, I know this <clears throat> probably is borderline provocative. And I'm not trying to provoke anything. I'm not trying to deliberately be provocative. But, you know, <clears throat> you know there's, there's one place at least once a week you should go to have your mind pried open to try to get the death grip of carnal thinking off of our thinking and open us up a little bit. Let the breath of the Holy Spirit blow through and give us some, some life-giving understanding, some true liberty, some true freedom. Then it ought to be church. Amen. That's where you ought to go to have your, yourself challenged and opened up. So that's what I'm trying to do, not trying to provoke any um, inappropriate visions or ideas or things, but just know that's Jesus. That is how he is worshiping and praising. The little bit we see of Jesus, we see him just excited in the Father's love. Listen, Jesus isn't saying simmer down. Thus saith the Lord, simmer down. <laughs> Jesus is saying, thus saith the Lord, stir it up. Stir it up, stir it up, stir it up. You say, you're going to have to show me that in the Bible. All right, great, no problem. Luke chapter 23 and verse 5. The Pharisees didn't accuse Jesus of calming the people down. They accused him of stirring them up. That's exactly what the scripture says. He stirreth the people up. It doesn't say he calmeth the people down. 
So he was accused of stirring people up. Glory to God. And uh, the apostles. After the day of Pentecost, the apostles' job wasn't to calm the people down after they received the Holy Ghost. That, that was your chance to say amen or laugh or do something. It was not the job of the Apostle Paul or John the rest of them to calm everyone down after they got filled with the Holy Ghost. Their job was to keep them stirred up. Once the Holy Spirit was poured out, stir it up, stir it up, stir it up. That's what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Stir up the gift that is within you. Peter was even worse. Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1, As long as I'm with you, I will be stirring you up. That's exactly what it says. If you invite me into your service, count on me stirring you up. Don't invite me to preach if you want your people calmed down. Because I'm not a, the apostle of calm. I'm the apostle of stir it up. That's what Peter said. As long as I'm with you, I will stir you up. Hallelujah. All right, I gotta, I gotta move on. I, I'd like to pounce on that because I just think there should be more shouting and praising the Lord. But at any rate, I think you're shouting on the inside. Praise God. You know, um, I'm not getting any younger, and that's no surprise to anybody. 65 years old, been doing this a long time, a lot of years. One thing I have found out just walking the face of the earth for several decades is that as people age, they simmer down. Does anybody, anyone else know what I'm talking about? You mean, I see one person raising two hands. Anyone else know? You get older, you simmer, simmer down. Just happens. They go from a mighty flow to a manageable trickle. And I'm not just talking about physical energy. I'm talking about emotional energy. Everything seems to, to go from a, a wild, reckless uh, plume ride at an amusement park to a trickle, a faucet, with a hand firmly ensconced upon the valve with just enough water to wet that toothbrush. We simmer down as we get older. We go from the mighty flow to a trickle. As people age, they all run out of steam. And I, I don't want to bring us down uh, mentioning death, but what is death but eventually running out of steam? The body just runs out of steam, doesn't it? But listen, let me tell you something. God is heading in the opposite direction. That's life, but not God. God's going the other way. If you want to go with God, you've got to go the other way. God is heading in the other direction. He goes from a trickle to a flow. In, uh, what is it, I think the uh, 47th chapter of the book of Ezekiel, the prophet has a vision of the, the, the temple of God and the altar of God. And the river of life, the river of God, you could call it the anointing if you want, is flowing from the altar of God and it's coming out as a little stream, a little trickle. As it heads to the door of the temple, it begins to pick up momentum and depth and it widens. As it goes down the stairs and moves out into the land and out into the country where the world is, it's now becoming a stream that's ankle deep. And the further you get, and it's then knee deep. And then you go about another thousand uh, cubits. I don't know what a cubit is, but I imagine it's a little bit of a distance and it's up to the thighs then the hips up to the shoulders and after a while you I hope you know how to swim and the Bible says the river of God's anointing gets 
it gets bigger, it gets wider. The farther away from the altar it gets, the more out into the world. If you want more of God, get out into the world with Jesus. Because that you're going to see more power. Get off your couch, get out there, and you'll see that stream is moving. It's moving out there. Not a whole lot so much on your couch, but out there, God's anointing. They found that out in the book of Acts. When you read the book of Acts, you're reading the history of the stream going from the upper room, which was fairly powerful. And the more they went out from the upper room, the greater the depth of the stream of the anointing became. Hallelujah. Can you say amen? amen. You know, and then here comes the church, and they're cutting the power. The church has got a theology. They just cut the power out. Oh, yeah, 90 AD, 100 AD, no more gifts, no more manifestation. The stream goes back to a manageable trickle with a faucet, and uh, church leaders have got their hands on that faucet. Hey, that's the way the world goes. That's the way people go. That's what religion is. Religion is the truth of God reversed and shoved in the direction of the spirit of the world, Amen, made to accommodate the world. Oh, I didn't mean to get upset. I just, just, it, it doesn't bother me that people do that. It bothers me that people allow that to influence them. When God has sent his son to influence us with resurrection life, with zeal, it kills the zeal of God. So God goes from a trickle to a flow. Hey, God goes from small to big. He begins with small things, but they get big. Somewhere along the way, they just keep getting me. He goes from slow to fast. As we age, we go from what? Fast to slow. God goes from a whisper to a shout. When John was in, in heaven in the book of Revelation, they're running around shouting up there. Trumpets, shouting, carrying on. Hallelujah. Glory to God. God has not aged. He's not a senior citizen with a long gray beard. He hasn't mellowed, slowed down, or quieted down. He's eternally ageless with ever-flowing zeal. Think about it. God has not retired. He didn't speak his word and then hand the world the Bible while he goes to take a nap. He's not on retirement. No, his spirit is speaking. His spirit is shouting. Hallelujah. Can you say amen? amen? I'll tell you, God's chatty. And I don't mean that in a flimsy way, but God is speaking. Why else would God always either preclude or end his exhortations with, he that has ears to hear, let him hear. I'm speaking. Who's listening? Hallelujah. God's spirit is the spirit of zeal and the spirit of energy. John's vision of heaven was, as I said, full of praising and shouting. God is surrounded with it. You would think after so many years, he'd be a little tired. You want a break? I get a little quiet up here. God likes loud music. Oh, I know some of you are thinking, oh, don't you bring that doctrine in here. Um, we, we, we need to be sensitive of one another, so I'm, I'm not saying that that's, that, that, 
that that should be overturned with my statement. But I, I'm going to make the statement anyway. God likes loud music. He absolutely likes And you say, where do you, come, where do you come up with this stuff? Well, I happen to know that when John was in heaven having the vision and writing the book of Revelation, it was an anomaly. It was weird that there was silence for 30 minutes. Not we're going to have 30 minutes of shouting. They stopped the shouting for 30 minutes to have silence, and it was weird. It was strange. Are you listening to me? How many of you ever read it? It was strange. So much so he had to record it. Ooh, there was a space of 30 minutes where there was nothing. Quiet. The Holy Spirit is not looking for a people to rest in. He's looking for a people to flow through, to shout through, hallelujah, to spring from. Out of your innermost being shall spring rivers of living water. This he spake of the Spirit, which they that believe on him afterwards should receive. So we should receive the Spirit that flows. The Holy Ghost is not looking to hold up in your life and rest until it's time to go to heaven. Can you just cool it and be calm and take me to heaven with you? You stay cool, you stay calm, and I'll stay cool, and I'll keep you in peace and everything as you go through life. No, man, why do we read these books and testimonials or see these movies about reckless Christians who go out? And I don't mean reckless, and again, not trying to be provocative, but people who are bold. Let me use that word, bold. They're going out. They're lifting up Jesus Christ. They are, they are door-kicking. For Jesus, hallelujah. And they're out there. The Holy Ghost is loving it. The Holy Ghost said, this is what I came for. He did not come so that you could keep him safe from the world for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years and then take him back to heaven with you. He's not God's afraid, a little scared pet. He is the spirit of Jesus, the spirit of God. Somebody say Amen. Do you ever wonder why God gave the Hebrews, as they were passing through the wilderness, one-day bread instead of one-week bread? Did you ever notice that? The manna. It was 24-hour manna. It didn't give them 72-hour manna. It didn't give them seven-day manna. It didn't give them 30-day manna. It gave them one-day manna, 24-hour manna. You ever wonder why that? Have you? Yes. Oh, good. Thank God. An inquisitive mind. It's wonderful. Praise the Lord. Um, it was, I believe so that they would have to go out every morning and collect it, and thus stay energetic. It is the nature, our nature, the nature of humans, to calm down, simmer down. We always want to do less. We never want to do more, unless it's eat. <laughs> do you understand what I'm saying to you? And so God said, now, I'm going to provide you with food, but I'm going to make it so that you've got to go out every morning and forage for it because I need you to stay energetic. I don't need to be doing things in your life that are going to cause you to be less energetic. God's needing us to be zealous, and inactive people are not zealous people. Zealous people are active people. Praise the Lord. You could just put that in your notes. God didn't prove... God didn't put preservatives in the manna like Lay's potato chips so that his people could lay up with the remote in one hand and reach under the couch and pull out the chips whenever they needed a snack or got hungry. 
it took zeal to go out every morning and get the manna. If you didn't do it, you didn't eat. I, that'll preach by itself. Just think about it. It took zeal to have to gather that manna. It takes zeal to love God. It does. It does not come natural to the natural flow of life. Remember, life is heading in one direction. God is heading in the other direction. And it takes zeal to motivate yourself to love God. Why? Why does it take zeal? Why did God want to keep zeal in the life of the people that he was feeding with that 24-hour manna? Because the world, the promised land, is full of giants. And he knew that the people that would defeat the giants would have to be a zealous people. Are you listening to me? He knew that giants in the promised land cannot be overcome by simmered down, quiet Christians. I know you're thinking, I better say something right now because I don't want to be a, I don't want to look like a simmered down, quiet Christian. But let me just say to you one more time, God knew that the promised land with the giants could not be overcome with simmered down, quiet Christians. It would take zealous Christians. And so the Spirit of God is in us, and it is the Spirit of zeal. That's why the apostles and Jesus were constantly stirring people up. Jesus was constantly saying things to keep, not to keep the people that were following him off guard, but to keep them on their toes, to keep them in a state of zeal. If you're hungering and thirsting, you will pursue the Lord. Can you say amen? amen. I want to close with this thought. You know, <clears throat> God started the first church service. God invented the first church service. They didn't come up with a church service, a program, and invite God to it. God started it. started on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Surely you've read that. And God charted, started the first church service 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus Christ on Pentecost Sunday morning at 9 o'clock in the morning. It started on a Sunday. So on Pentecost Sunday, 50 days after the resurrection, at 9 o'clock, God kicked off the service with an outpouring of the Holy Ghost after they had spent many days coming into alignment with him, praying together, coming into unity, pouring their hearts out, putting pettiness aside, putting other pursuits aside until they were all streamlined, heading in one direction, intent upon one purpose. We want the Holy Spirit. We want to glorify Jesus. We are hungering and thirsting for him. Hallelujah. And so the moment they hit critical mass, at 9 o'clock in the morning, bam, out comes the Holy Ghost. And the Holy Ghost, who is he? He is the spirit of zeal. He is the spirit that Isaiah prophesied about in our text in Isaiah chapter 9. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The zeal of the Lord will bring forth the government of Jesus Christ. The Son has been given to you. The gift of God has been given to you. The government is on his shoulders. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish his purpose in the midst of you. Can you say amen? amen? So God designed the first church service, and guess what? 
The first church service was designed to get people full of the Holy Ghost. That was the order of the day. If they passed out a program, I don't think they did. But you know, you go to some churches, they pass out a program. What's going to happen today? Got it all there. There's four songs. So-and-so is going to do the offering. It's going to be a special. Message is about such and such. Here's the notes. If they'd have made up a program, it would have been very easy. They could have put it on a little napkin. Holy Ghost Falls, dot, dot, dot. That was God's order. That was God's plan. So God invents the first church service. Its whole objective is to pour out the Holy Spirit and to get people full of the zeal of the Lord. Immediately you saw the zeal when Peter jumps up on the balcony and he's speaking to the crowd. Can you say amen? So God's first church service that he designed was, listen to me, hear this, was not designed to impress unbelievers. The first church service was not designed to impress unbelievers. It wasn't designed with unbelievers in mind. It was designed to fill believers. Because believers filled and set on fire will go get unsaved people. They'll attract unsaved people. In fact, look at what happened. As the Holy Ghost was poured out, all the unbelievers started shouting up, up to the balcony, up to the upper room, saying, what the heck are you all doing up there? You guys are, are you guys drinking? Why did they say that? Because they heard zeal. They heard the zeal of the Lord. As they were all being filled with the Spirit and praying in other tongues and overflowing, and just, just uh, they weren't going nuts. They were worshiping the Lord, and the Spirit of God was flowing through them. The unsafe people said, y'all crazy? What's happening? What is this? Nine o'clock in the morning, you people should be ashamed of yourself up there drinking. <laughs> the first church service God designed was not made, not, not designed to impress unbelievers. It was designed to convict unbelievers. So God does not want to attract sinners to religion. He wants to attract sinners to the spirit of zeal. I believe that the first church service that God designed was his pattern. I don't think it was a kickoff. I think it was a pattern. Are you listening to me? I don't believe that uh, the day of Pentecost was an initial filling, and then afterwards the apostles would take it from there and manage the church and manage everything. I don't believe it was the initial filling. I believe it was the pattern. In fact, when you read through the book of Acts, they gathered several times. Same thing would happen. They'd wait on the Lord, pray, Holy Ghost would be falling. Stuff would be happening. Wait on the Lord and pray, Holy Ghost fall. Stuff would be happening. Wait on the Lord, pray, Holy Ghost fall. Stuff. What was happening? The, the first church services were all about getting filled. So much so... That pattern was the pattern of the New Testament church that Paul had to write corrections to the Corinthians because they were going a little too far. They were, they were saying, oh, this is all about getting filled, and they were getting in the flesh over it. But as he writes to them, the corrections in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, he's given them corrections. 
He doesn't kill the Holy Spirit. He doesn't kill the idea, criticize the idea, or put away the idea of being filled. Being filled is still the objective. He wrote to the Ephesians, Be not drunk with wine where it's an excess like the Corinthians do, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your heart. God's pattern for the church. Somebody say praise the Lord. So Pentecost wasn't an initial fill-up. Pentecost was the eternal pattern. That's what God wants when we gather. That is what should be happening. And nobody can make up your mind that you're here to get filled except you. We can prepare what's going to happen, but you've got to do the drinking. You've got to do the hungering and thirsting. You've got to do the calling. Ask, and you shall receive. It's not go get the priesthood to ask for you. You ask. If you want God moving in your life, ask. Too often we come in thinking if I go to the right church, I'll be blessed. If I go to the right church that has the right doctrine, I'll be blessed. If I just go there, and unfortunately people go and they just sit like a ward on a pickle and just expect that it's going to happen to them. But God is not magic. He said, he even made it so clear in the Sermon on the Mount. If you ask, if you seek, you'll find. If you're thirsty, I'll fill you. And so it's about getting filled. In fact, I'll close with this last thought. The Last Supper, 50 days before, that's that Last Supper before Resurrection Sunday, 50 days after Resurrection Sunday is Pentecost Sunday. Well, I believe the Last Supper, the Last Supper was a prelude to the first breakfast. We never preach about the first breakfast, but the day of Pentecost was the first breakfast. Thank God for the Last Supper. We're going to have communion in a few minutes. But this was not the end all. This was the beginning. This was the setup. This was the, 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 the opening for the, for the first breakfast. The first breakfast. Every time we gather, we should be having breakfast. God sets his table Come and dine, the master calls. Hallelujah. Come and receive that new wine. Come and receive the word of God. Let him fill us. You know, we go through life. Life kicks stuff out of us. We get worn down. God is wanting to refill you with his spirit. Refill you with his grace. Can you say amen? amen. I'd like the servers to come. And if you would, I'd like you to stand with me this morning. We're going to take a moment and pray, and then I'm going to invite you to come. And as we come to the table to fellowship, what we're going to do, not a lot of people, so it's pretty logistically pretty easy to do, is we're just going to gather around, and those that are closest to the table can serve themselves first, and then we'll all eat and drink together. Um, but let's take a moment right now, and let's just...